The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, media and technology, creatives, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If you're like my dad was, and, and you're always kind of yelling at the TV, like, what are you doing? Or you see the person you agree with, and you're like, I'm with you, but I would have said it differently. A lot of us have that experience, right? You sit at home, you watch something, you're like, man, if I was on that show, making the case for this or against this, here's how I would say it. The amazing thing about my job or my path or my life is that I actually get to do that. In case you missed it, back at you with another Full Disclosure Rewind featuring highlights from recent episodes, including Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, an investor pondering how inflation and the housing shortage have taken the shine off the American dream, plus a Miami influencer on how to maybe, perhaps, make a living on Instagram. Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. We start with U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, who joined us and an overflow live audience at the University of Richmond to discuss not just planes, trains, and automobiles, we did lots of that, but also his surreal 20-year route from winning a high school essay contest to nearly nabbing the 2020 Democratic nomination for president. I want to take this to you. I go back to these photos of this essay contest in 2000. It was the Profiles and Courage Award, right, with the Kennedy Foundation, and you wrote about Bernie Sanders, who was then, you know, fiercely independent representative. 20 years after that, you're both on the brink of becoming president of the United States. I remember the 2020 primary. Life comes at you fast, and I'm wondering what that experience, what that symmetry was like. You know, it's funny, one time at the end of a debate, Bernie came up to me and said, uh, uh, as only Bernie can do, you want to go back and read that essay you wrote in high school, Pete? Um, I occasionally indulge in the daydream of imagining my some younger self catapulted into this moment, looking around, trying to piece together what had happened. And I wonder what that 18-year-old high school student who wrote an essay for a Profile and Courage essay competition about a member of the House who I wrote about because I felt, whether you agree with him or not on everything, The idea of somebody who said exactly what he was and who he was and didn't care about the political consequences and didn't care, as it looked in 1999, didn't care that that meant he would never go further in politics than being a member of the House, right? And was still able to get things done. That that, that was something I really respected. And by the way, still do. I mean, all all the things that motivated me to to write about him then, even though I competed with him because I had different ideas about what the top of our ticket should should do, uh, you know, I still feel that way. But it is obviously head-spinning to find yourself on a stage competing for the presidency with somebody you were writing 
an essay about when you were in high school, which let's face it, wasn't that long ago. And it is an example of what life can throw at you and also what's possible in, in, this, in this country and in this life. Hold that concept possibility because it was the same thing on my mind when I saw you reciprocate with sign language to a supporter, a young supporter. And I see you go on Fox News confidently with not many Democrats or young Democrats do. And I see you go on Charlemagne the God, right, confidently. Like how many people do that? And I always had this question. There's like one question. If I'm sitting next to Mayor Pete at a wedding or a bar mitzvah, where did it start? What was the inception of your, and I know it's going to sound hokey to some people, but it's a through line of this show. When did you believe that you could, that just go for it? Go for it, like run for president or? Everything you've done over 20 years. I mean, I want you to unpack that for us. You, not a lot of people throw themselves into Fox News. Here, Sean Hannity, I'll, I'll answer all the questions you have. You know, you're, you seem just as comfortable on The Late Show. You, you do all of these things. At some point, was there a person? Was there a mentor? Was there an inflection point that said, you know, you're different, but you're going to go full speed ahead. You'll get the things you want. It's about execution. It's about, I don't know, you tell me. Well, yeah, there's definitely a lot of people. I mean, I'm moved that you, you acknowledged your, your Spanish teacher who had a big effect on, on your path. And I had a number of teachers who believed in me, maybe believed in me more than I believed in myself. I was lucky to have parents who were the same way, had high expectations and, and believed in me. I, for most of, at least most of the way through high school, wanted to be an airline pilot, which, by the way, is, is still a great career. And we're looking for more people to enter that career. <laughs> You student undergraduates thinking about interesting uh, turns you might take. And then learned some things about my eyesight that ruled out military aviation training and, and for a bunch of other reasons just wound up not on that path. I didn't, I think, grow up thinking I would run for office. Uh, I, I, we were a very politically conscious family. In South Bend? Yeah. The, the news was always on. My dad was always yelling at the TV about some what <laughs> Ronald Reagan was doing or something. But we're not a politically connected family. I don't even remember the first time I would have met an elected official uh, until I was a student, actually, or I guess when I won that essay contest and I got to go to the JFK library and there were senators there. It's it really head spinning. But I also had the experience that I think so many of us do in different ways where you try something and you see what happens and you get somewhere and then you try a little more. And whether it's been learning a language or an instrument or learning a sport, that has really propelled me when it's gone well. And it turns out running for office is kind of like that, especially if you are politically aware. If you're like my dad was, and, and you're always kind of yelling at the TV, like, what are you doing? Or, or you see the person you agree with on TV, and you're like, I'm with you, but I would have said it differently. A lot of us have that experience, right? You sit at home, you watch something, you're like, man, if I was on that show, making the case for this or against this, here's how I would say it. And the amazing thing about my job or my path or my life is that I actually get to do that. I bet if, if you're left of center, I bet just about everybody here has imagined what you would say if you were on Fox News and they came at you with one of these crazy questions. Like, I actually get to do that. So in a way, it's very natural. It's just taking the, it's taking the same things that you mutter to yourself in the shower when you're getting ready for the day or when you're driving and you hear something on the radio uh, and you just actually get to do it. South Bend, turn of the century, you're going to pack your bags and head east for Harvard. You had no aspiration of becoming mayor of South Bend. It wasn't even on the radar. You know, I grew up, first of all, if, if you're not familiar with South Bend, if all you know about it is that the University of Notre Dame is there, you might assume it, it was a comfortable, prosperous, tidy, racially homogenous, well-off college town. It's not. 
we were company town for Studebaker. For Studebaker. Studebaker, yeah. 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 Um, which was as big as the big three are now in its day. Collapsed in 1963. I grew up not even knowing that it wasn't normal to drive by acres and acres of crumbling factories on your way to school. And the message, I don't know anybody said it in these words, but the message I absorbed growing up was, get out. If you want to make something of yourself, if you want to succeed, get out. Which is what I did. I went to Harvard, went to the East Coast, went to where the action was. And as soon as I got there, I began to realize the extent to which I was actually from somewhere. You realize that when you, even a place that you're in a lot of tension with, I imagine most students here have had this experience where there may have been a, a number of things that made you not totally fit in where you're from, which is part of why you may have chosen to go to school somewhere different from where you're from. And the moment you get there, you begin to notice certain things actually about where you're from that you carried with you that make you not totally fit in in the new place that you've arrived in. And navigating that tension, among other things, gives you something to offer when, if and when you do choose to go back to where you're from. And one thing I'm really... One thing I really admire about a lot of people in my generation is people who chose to go back to places that were unglamorous and often struggling and, and, and make themselves useful there, make a difference there. And that's what I got to do in South Bend. So no, I, I, I never imagined. Even once I was thinking I might want to run for office, which I was by the time I was a student, I was thinking about foreign affairs and big national and international things. It took me longer to realize that I would find so much more meaning and opportunity closer to home, working on local things that I hadn't really paid as much attention to as, as a high schooler or, or as a college student. Cambridge was not the place to come out, though. I was, I, well, I mean, in a certain way, it's probably a, maybe a better place to come out than Indiana. But, um, <laughs> but having grown up in Indiana, I was so deep in the closet that I wasn't even ready to come out to myself when I was an undergraduate, or for that matter, a graduate student. I was a long way from that. And then when I finally got that far, which took a long time. Matter of fact, I remember the first time I told a friend, uh, which is kind of my way of cementing that I had come out to myself, was to tell that first other person. He kind of patted me on the shoulder and said, you didn't really make it easy on yourself with your career choices, because by then I had two careers. One was public service in Indiana, and the other was as a military officer in the reserve, where it was, when I signed up, the policy of my country to fire me if it came to light that I was gay. So obviously these conditions also not conducive to coming out of the closet. What changed all of that, what put me over the edge was actually my military career because uh, I, got, I got activated. I went to Afghanistan. I served there while I was mayor. I did. In the Naval Reserve. Yeah, Naval Reserve uh, sent me to Afghanistan, landlocked country, but <laughs> these things happen in the American military. Um, and I did something that, that you are told to do when, when, when you deploy, which is to write a letter to be opened just in case. I still have it. It still says just in case on the outside. And as I'm sitting down to write that letter, I'm thinking... I'm getting ready to serve in a war. I'm an adult. I'm a homeowner. I'm the mayor of my hometown. And I have no idea what it's like to be in love. And if I come back, I can't let that continue. And so when I came back, I knew it was a matter of time. Uncomfortably, it was an election year for me. Um, <laughs> but I just knew it was time. And, and so I did. And everything changed. Because uh, then I could date. And then I met Chaston. And then everything really changed.
I, I read somewhere that you described yourself as kind of a glorified Uber driver in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. We call and him. I can't imagine. I'm thinking of Yosarian in Catch-22 with the sorties and fearing for your life and PTSD. Is there any way you can give us a window into that experience and also how you bucked up and went there to begin with? Yeah. Um, first of all, I don't want to make it out like I, I was not you know, a Navy SEAL, I did one deployment. There, there are people I was with who served five, six, seven deployments. Uh, so I don't want to exaggerate my contributions. But yeah, it, it turned out that there is an intelligence analyst, but it turned out what they really needed, what my unit really needed more often than not was a driver because there were restrictions on who could drive. You had to be trained and qualified on a long gun, uh, so a, a, a rifle and not just a pistol, in order to go outside the wire. And there needed to be two long guns per vehicle Anyway, all of which is to say there are a lot of situations where I needed to be available to drive either my commander or uh, other people in my unit or gear, either around Kabul, outside the wire, or between Kabul and Bagram, which was a dangerous road. One time I needed somebody to come with me, and he was one of these more grizzled types who'd, who'd been there many times and uh, volunteered to, to drive with me and chose to point out along the way the different places where IEDs had killed people that he knew. And... Uh, it's, it's your job, so you do it. And you're glad that you, every time you come back, you're, you're just glad for it. I, I think I went outside the wire roughly 100 times. Again, I do not want to make it sound like I was kicking down doors in, in Kandahar. I was driving a Toyota Land Cruiser, but you know, not everybody who did that made it. And so coming back and trying to make sense, in fact, the day I left, somebody doing that didn't make it. So you come back home trying to make sense of why somebody makes it and somebody else doesn't. And, of course, there's no good answer to that. And so the best way you make sense of it is to say, well, I, I did make it, so I better do everything I can to have the kind of life and, and live in the kind of country that's worthy of what it took to protect that country. At least that's how I make sense of it. And I'm fast-forwarding in a way that in the blink of an eye later, you're winning the Iowa primary in 2020, just as a kind of a once in a generation pandemic is about to take over the world. Yeah. I mean, this is how I, I kind of look at this episodically. I know life you might not look back at these things and say, oh, oh no. And again, to, to return you to that daydream, I'm, I mean, I try to imagine what it would be like if a, like a, a 20 year old me was like by some sci-fi maneuver catapulted into, uh, you know, I don't know, on, onto a, a debate stage where I'm surrounded by everybody from, you know, then Vice President Biden to Bernie Sanders, and we're getting questions about this. Uh, I think it came up in a debate. I hope I'm not conflating this. But anyway, the, the, the issue of the coronavirus was beginning to, to be discussed and just wondering what, what just happened. But that's, that's how the world works, right? That's how events happen. And, and yeah, not that much time separates the year 2014 when I was driving that up-armored land cruiser up the highway from Kabul to Bagram to when I was... Uh, at the Iowa caucuses. Now, of course, the problem with how I won the Iowa caucuses was nobody knew that I won the Iowa caucuses until about <laughs> two or three weeks later. And the whole idea is the night that you win, you get to take the momentum with you into New Hampshire. And then, but didn't Bill Clinton, Artley, you know, the comeback kid, isn't there just a way of spinning it? I tried. It <laughs> <laughs> didn't work. Look, I, I came first, second, and third. I came in the top, top four finishes in the first four, but the problem was it was first, second, third, fourth in that order. And um, when that happens, that's how you know it's time to get out. And I did, and, and threw my weight behind uh, President Biden. And, and How did that happen? How did that, you and your, the person who you profiled at the turn of the century, 
out of this big catapult in, out of high school, everything happens so rapidly. The pandemic picks up speed. Suddenly Biden goes from being, everybody said no chance, to winning South Carolina, and it's all momentum, and everybody kind of fell in line. I don't understand how that happens. I guess, you know, everybody kind of left that candidacy for dead. And I know COVID was a once-in-a-lifetime type thing, and uh, the then-president's reaction to it kind of was once-in-a-lifetime. And what happened behind the scenes that the party realized, this is serious, we have to coalesce? I think, and to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure how much COVID, we all saw very quickly how serious COVID was, but I think that the understanding of the need to coalesce was, was driven by other dynamics, understanding what was at stake. They always tell you it's the most important election ever, but we all certainly felt that that way. And I think we're reminded in various moments, especially by world events, you know, the, my party's competitors were people who had strong disagreements with each other, but at the end of the day, were, were dramatically more aligned with each other than we were uh, with, with the other side. And that if we really wanted to make the best case, we had to rally around the leader we believed in, which is what we did. And now, you know, one thing that's really gratifying now is to see how many of the things that various among us candidates, and you might remember, there were 20 who just qualified for the debates. There was a lot of candidates with a lot of ideas. And to see how many of those ideas have, many of which overlapped anyway, have become a reality. You know, everything from ideas around volunteer service that I was proud of, that I see uh, rhymed with, with some of what the president's leading with the Climate Corps, to things in the infrastructure plan that we put out in my campaign, some of which are, are aligned with things that actually happened that President Biden got done. Just across so many issues, so many ideas that we were able, to, we've now been able to do. And, and it's all the more remarkable, I think, because it happened in a very divided country with a very narrowly divided Congress, which delivered some of these wins on a bipartisan basis. Notably, of course, the infrastructure deal. People didn't think you could do anything on a bipartisan basis. And yet there we were, almost, it was November, it was almost exactly two years ago, with the president, with, by the way, a lot of us who were competing against each other back in 2019, 2020, uh, as, as he signed that bill. And to me, it's an example of exactly what we're shooting for when you come together and make common cause. You didn't take your momentum, you know, from the great things that happened in the spring of 2020 and decide, OK, I'm going to drop out and go on Dancing with the Stars. You, um, I can't dance. That's the problem with that. <laughs> you knew that you had political capital, especially generationally. You know, the Mayor Pete hashtag. This is something where we've discussed before. Uniquely, a handful of people in D.C., I would say, you, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they could go straight to a generation, straight to people. And you won that overwhelmingly then. I mean, how many transportation secretaries can anybody name? Um, you know, oftentimes there's a rock star state secretary or something. So to a certain extent, could you have picked really any direction on the cabinet? Because, again, you've got foreign policy chops got municipal chops. What was it about transportation that kind of sealed the deal for you? Well, one thing about transportation is it aligns with so many of the things that mayors spend a lot of time thinking about. Not just transportation per se, redoing our streets was, was one of the things that I worked on. One of the things I was proudest of was our city was honored by the U.S. Department of Transportation. Uh, actually, the room where I now do press briefings was a room where I got to be there as, as, as that award was given for some of our streetscape work. So parts of it were very familiar. Uh, of course, parts of it weren't. We, we do commercial space travel. We oversee the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. These are not obviously not things that came up uh, when when I was mayor of South Bend, Indiana. But but there's a connection. There's a rhyme. And and one thing I find is that I'm often with mayors who are trying to get stuff done and relatively nonpartisan work who need a bit of a wind at their back. I wish when I was mayor there was a 1.2 trillion dollar infrastructure bill going on. Uh, very few things are more rewarding than than being able to be with local leaders and and mobilize those those kinds of federal resources that I wish we had when I was doing that job sure. to help them get it done. 
And it's true, not just mayors, but just communities. I was in a r small rural community that has an airport, even though it's a tiny 2,500 people. But the airport really matters because they use it for uh, flights to get people to a hospital when they need acute medical care. And their airport, their general aviation terminal, this is in Chamberlain, South Dakota, is a mobile home. I mean, it's been expanded and dressed up, but you can tell it was, it was a double wide. And we got them the funding to, to get a permanent building there. And I saw these, you know, I met with these county leaders, these really practical and plain-spoken guys, some of whom were coming to the verge of tears because they cared so much about this and we were finally getting it done. Being able to do things like that is why I, I think the Secretary of Transportation is the best job in the federal government. You were listening to some of the recent Full Disclosure Live with Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Catch the entire conversation at fulldradio.com, NPR, NPR One, or wherever you get your pods. Do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and rate us, is fulldradio.com. Follow on all social media at handle fulldradio. We continue with some of my recent talk with Investopedia's Caleb Silver, who discussed the growing sense that the American dream might well be out of reach for most. And I can't get my head around this. You kind of almost do need a housing crash right there and right now to demand destruction or bring prices down. But those people who have been waiting on the sidelines with cash might not be in a position in a you know, down economy to finally pull the trigger on buying that home. This is the lament I keep hearing. And then if you listen to people like David Leonhardt, if you go, you know, listen to podcasts right now, there, there are people that just might have to resign themselves not being homeowners for a decade or a decade more. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we, we look at what our readers have been looking at all year. We do our top terms of the year at Investopedia. And for 2023, I'll give you the top one. It was the American dream. And it was not people seeking the American dream. We believe it's a lot of people thinking that that dream is not realistic for them, especially younger people. Why? They're locked out of the housing market, as we said. They can't buy that asset to build their families. They don't feel like they'll ever be able to save enough for retirement. And just figuring out the cost of real things today to have a reasonable expectation of raising a family in this country, sending kids to college, you know, marrying somebody off, funerals, having pets, owning a few used cars over your lifetime, that number is out of reach for so many Americans. We actually put a price tag on it, $3.4 million in today's dollars of a lifetime of earnings to be able to achieve what the so-called American dream, which is just that reasonable expectation that you can raise a family in this country. A lot of people don't feel that anymore because Again, the house is out of reach right now. The ability to save for retirement is out of reach. Wages have been growing, but super slowly. So if your wages have been growing and you're making over $200,000, that's a big deal at 4%. But if you're making $75,000 around the median income and, the, and your wages have gone up 4%, you don't feel it as much, especially because inflation has been 4% or higher for most of this year. Back in my personal finance reporting days, Caleb, I'd love meeting with this fund manager, Ronald Muhlenkamp. Um, you know, he's a tractor driving guy from Pennsylvania. He's a farmer fund manager, uh, went to HBS, but also talks about his grandpa, you know, losing his walking because an overly aggressive rooster pecked at his knee or something like that. Like he could talk these terms. And he's almost nostalgic for an era when earning children and grandchildren would turn around and buy a home 
from a grandparent, and that would provide fixed income in retirement back in the day, that there was this generational handoff of housing. And now, you know, when you're talking about the American dream, it's so distorted by zero interest rate policy, by speculation, by this pandemic, which not caused, not just, you know, caused a, a rethink of, of housing and maybe a renaissance of housing, but I would also say fetishized housing. There are Older people who are holding on to their homes that are maybe hoarding inventory in smaller satellite cities. There were wealthy people in the big cities that now hold on to their apartments and get something in the suburbs. And that crowds out everybody else outside of it that does not have access to cash or cannot come in and be nimble enough with an effective bid when maybe very rare inventory turns over. You know, when you talk about the American dream right now, there's a true rethink of it, especially, I think, you know, among the millennials who face so many calamities, you know, since coming out of college graduation. You're absolutely right. Half, more than half of homeowners have mortgages that are under 5%, right? So they're in no hurry to sell their home to go out and buy a new one at a 7 or 8% mortgage. And you mentioned all the people that are holding onto their homes. What about the private equity firms and the other big Wall Street institutions that have nothing but cash to buy homes and buy entire zip codes of homes if they want or apartment complexes, and they become your landlord. So that happened back at the end of the last, at the great financial crisis, starting to happen again today. So cash rules everything around the housing market right now, but inventory is super tight. And again, that feeling like I'll never be able to even get the starter home to make my way into the next home that is pretty prevalent among younger generations right now, as are the other things. Now, that American dream I talked about is so unique. It's very different for you. It's very different for me. It's different for every one of your listeners because we all have a different idea of what that means. But again, that basic concept of can I raise a family reasonably, have insurance, send my kids to college, pay for health care, pay for weddings and funerals and pets and those things, that just seems like it's not attainable for so many people right now. So they're rethinking it. And what does rethinking it mean? It means rethinking the way we work. And that happened right through the pandemic. How do we work? Where do we work? Who do we want to work for? The value of experiences and what our money is supposed to be used for, right? The cost of being us and the cost of being the us we want to be is something we all need to figure out individually. And that dream was manufactured, the American dream, was really manufactured by the financial services industry over the past 50 years. You see the commercials on the Golf Channel, they're aimed right at me because they want me to think that that's what I need in my life. But that that term, the American dream, was actually coined in 1931 by James Truslow Adams in a book called Epic of America, Robin. And it was about the notion that this was a country where you could sort of chart your own destiny. Everybody had an opportunity and that was written in the depths of the Great Depression. So the dream has just been morphed generation after generation. And right now, again, it seems like it's not real for so many people. You know, coda on this and that it came out as, as the most, as the you know, term of the year, the American dream. Uh, we're reminded of how much intergenerational wealth matters. Uh, just the, the power of compounding, the mind-blowing statistic, I still can't get it out of my head that if a 1917 soldier, U.S. soldier on the way to World War I put $1,000 in a mason jar and buried it versus $1,000 in the S&P, it wasn't the 500 back then, and just let it compound for uh, 106 years, you know, the millions of dollars you would have versus the $1,000 you have. And you think about people who inherited generational wealth, people had stocks passed down to them or homes passed down to them or were blessed to have a 529 that was funded by a grandparent. 
there are a lot of people who start off at second and third base, and I'm increasingly hearing kind of resentment of, of, of people who were first to go to college who realize, I have that, but I also have debt, and I didn't have anything to hang my hat on in terms of money bequeathed to me that would have been giving me a, a head start on housing, to say nothing of elder care costs and the other things facing Gen Xers. I mean, it's a complex time. Absolutely, it is. And again, the way we work and the, the notion of work and building a career someplace, one company over time, that's long gone. You just think about, you know, back in the, in, the, in the latter part of the 20th century with the end of the pensions and the move to the 401k and the responsibility was fine, you know, was on the, the, the worker and on the, the, the consumer versus the company. All of that has changed that thinking. But the magic of compounding has been here all along. So you can complain about a lot of these things, and a lot of people have a right to do it, especially folks that never had an opportunity, never had generational wealth passed to them, never had somebody pay for college or get them started on their first home. But if you started investing back when you were 20 and you're 50 right now, uh, you've had the magic of compounding. There's a reason that Albert Einstein calls it the ninth wonder of the world. It is the magic of the stock market, which goes up an average of 9 to 10% a year, going all the way back to the beginning days of the S&P 500. I always ask this question. I teach a lot of high school classes, and I talk to kids about, what if you just put $10,000 in the S&P 500 10 years ago, and then you went away to the circus for 10 years and didn't look at it? What would that be today? That would be about $25,000 today. You're talking about how to double your money over time. You need time, and that's the magic of compounding. So there are ways to combat this gap that people feel in their lives, but we don't teach investing and wealth building in high school. We don't teach it to kids coming out of college when they're saddled with all this debt. Instead, we incentivize them to spend, and they end up in debt, and they feel like they can never get up that slippery slope. Think about you know my first week in college um, and, and the activities fair and all the credit card applications that were there. I had to learn how to sign a checkbook and everything, and we just did not get that education in high school. We had you know, AP economics, but no personal finance. Yeah, you got the free Frisbee, the water bottle, and the new credit card the day you showed up on campus, and then you and all your roommates had, the, you know, had all these things plus a new credit card to go spend on Friday nights, and you never learned what it actually means to have good credit, bad credit, what the impact of the other side of compounding could potentially do to your own balance sheet. And 30 years later, I'm just a poor journalist, but do stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and all fine podcatchers. The link, please subscribe and rate us and recommend us, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. You could listen to our sold-out live show that we had recently with U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. You can sign up for our next live show with NPR Steve Inskeep. It's going to be January 31st at the Robbins School of Business at the University of Richmond. And generally, just follow us on all socials at handle fulldradio. If you're just joining us, my guest yet again is Investopedia's Caleb Silver, we're talking about this peculiar year in markets and the economy that refused to throw in the towel. And, you know, one of the things I don't understand, because the last, you know, when we had the lost decade, Caleb, for United States stocks after the great dot-com collapse, that was a great decade for international. It really, it really vindicated and validated diversification, being in uh, developed economies such as, you know, Austria and the UK and, and France and Australia. And especially emerging economies, Brazil, India, China, frontier economies like the Philippines had a gangbuster decade. And yet I look at the numbers right now, 
And it still blows my mind that this international diversification has not worked. It, it's been dead money for 15 years. Yeah, it worked for a few minutes earlier this year when it looked like international stocks would lead the rally over U.S. stocks. But again, then we had that concentration of the Magnificent Seven, those big tech stocks, which took the market higher as soon as there was a, a whiff in the air that the Fed was done raising rates, which was back in July. The market really started rallying in mid-October of this year, and it has been on a tear ever since that. And international stocks have just not kept up. This was supposed to be the year also that the Chinese stock market sort of corrected itself after a couple of years in a spiral, and that just didn't materialize this year. Again, the Chinese stock market is very important to U.S. companies and to U.S. investors. They may not know, but they have exposure in companies they may not be aware of, and half of U.S. companies do business with China. So that was a, a development that didn't manifest this year. But if you look at some manufacturing economies and you look around the world, you've seen a big recovery in places like Germany and others, but the U.S. is still the dominant stock market. That's where most of the assets are. That's where most of the trading in, and that's where the biggest, most successful companies in the world are traded. You were listening to some of the recent episode where credit is due with Investopedia's Caleb Silver. Catch the entire conversation at FullDRadio.com or wherever you get your pods. Do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link, it's all there, is FullDRadio.com. Follow on all social media at handle FullDRadio. If you are just joining us, welcome to Full Disclosure Rewind, featuring highlights from recent episodes. We're going to close out with some of my conversation with Miami Instagram impresario Abel Sanchez, whose Miami Stadium brand, it started as a hobby, is morphing into an actual living. He is the owner, proprietor, curator, impresario of Miami Stadium LLC. Uh, this is my favorite thing on Instagram. I waste a ton of time on Instagram. It's the actual only social app I have on my phone because I would waste too Same. much time, yep. you know? But I love it because I learn something new from you every day. You go and tell me Thank about you. this street corner, about this cat, about this guy who used to hang with, um, you know, uh, the, the the person who inspired Hyman Roth and, and the Godfather. You know this stuff and you know where to marshal this stuff. And at other times when you're kind of cooling your heels, you're sitting at some corner having a, a coffee with a glass of water and a, a fine pastry. And I kind of live vicariously through you. My question to you is... At what point did you decide it's more than a hobby? Maybe there's a commercial impetus to this. You know, I, I think the community decided that for me. I, I always say I'm just a guy who schleps to work, man. I, I've never tried. I'm not on that influencer, you know, trying to be a public whatever. No disrespect to anyone. I get why a lot of folks do it. But I'm not selling energy drinks here. Like, I'm just living my life. I pay, go to work to pay my bills like anyone else. And this little thing started catching on, catching on the Miami Stadium. And I remember people, one of the best compliments I would get is folks would write me, they'd message me and be like, oh, you guys, like, we love you guys. You guys are great. You guys rock. And I'm sitting here like, it's this guy. Like, I, I don't have, I could use a few minions, but I don't have, you know, it was just me, a labor of love. And finally, over the last, I started in 2016 and keep growing organically, word of mouth, word of mouth. And right coming out of pandemic is where you could really feel like, okay, like this is, that's when I dropped my shirts and everything, got my LLC going. And I said, this is, this is legitimate. This is a movement. People coming up to me on the streets telling me how much they love it, how they learn. They show it to their parents. They show it to their kids. I've had teachers tell me, I wish I would have had you, 
you know, you were around when I was teaching years ago, like these amazing compliments, because I don't realize how many eyes are on it. I'm so kind of in my lane. And that's where really over the past few years, you could really feel like, okay, this this is a thing. Like this means something to people and people are learning. It's always that balance of uh, educational and entertaining that I try to maintain. So is it chiefly swag, your initial foray into this? I mean, t-shirts and stickers. I mean, the t-shirts when you, you, you know, post the new swag t-shirts, like the one you're wearing right now of, you know, Nelson Aguilar's mutiny card oh, carving a line yeah. through Miami. I mean, people were just, and one, he was super excited when he found out about that. And other people are like, yeah. I got to get my mitts on it. Um, yeah. And then you have this channel now with about 18,000 followers or close to 20,000 followers. Yeah. And a lot of people repost this stuff. And friends of yours, be it Miami History or History Miami Museum or uh, various football players, various people in the know, the owner of the Miami Heat. Talk to me about that multiplier effect. Of and, and full disclosure, I'm part of it because I'm a fan. I'm opting into this experience and yeah. I'm not being coerced or paid to re, you know, broadcast the stuff. It's because I'm I'm legitimately fascinated by it. Man, I you know, Rob, it means a lot coming from you, man. I know I'm doing it right when I have folks such as yourself. Um, I was chopping it up recently with Udonis Haslam at the highlight. He's you know, new owner of the Robote Renegades, longtime follower. Ran around 305 day rocking my Orange Bowl shirt. You can't put a monetary value. You know what I mean? That's a form of like social currency, street currency that just kind of happens. And that's, again, harkens back to when you see like, oh, this is real. Yuli Diaz, the monster Diaz. You start realizing there's certain people. John Jay, who's one of the most Miami athletes ever. Aside from just so many folks throughout the community, a lot of business owners that you kind of just become part of their daily lives. It's like reading a newspaper, only now it's in the palm of your hand and they come to the page every day. Oh, let's see what what this guy's dropping today, you know, and so I always just try to keep it authentic, you know, stay in my lane. Uh, I always say no, don't really get into religion or politics. Just kind of I found my my style and my vibe and I know what folks want. And fortunately, it's what I like and just keep it moving through there. And so it transcends so much because the site really is not about you uh, yeah. personally, but they recognize you. Udonis Hanslem will recognize you. This yeah. is a veteran player for the Miami Heat. He's legendary. He lasted longer than, you know, some redwood trees in California. Years, man. 20 years with the Miami Heat, but yeah. he's rocking your shirt, right? An Orange Bowl shirt on yeah. 305 day. And it's not like you you paid him to do that. He found this stuff and no. he wants to wear it. No, he's got quite the shirt collection. Udonis does not, does not lack for style of shirts. So I remember folks, I was actually, funny story, I was in, at an event during, it was some kind of book, uh, book week event they had and Nicolas Cage. So I'm at this event watching Nicolas Cage. I come out, I'd shut my phone off and my phone is just exploding and there's photos and videos and I'm like, what the hell's happening? And it's because everybody spotted him wearing the shirt and gave me the heads up and then you know a few months later i'm able to thank him because i said man i can't repay you for what you did for me it just brings a certain legitimacy and a certain sauce to what you do he's a wonderful person he's all about the community so uh you know this is when you start realizing like oh man this is you know i start seeing people wearing my shirts around town it's still very surreal or they'll come up to me oh man i've got three of your shirts four of your shirts it's all word of mouth so you know mm -hmm. it, you can't you can't predict that or plan that. It just kind of happened organically. 
I don't want to sound mercenary, but I'm fa- I'm legitimately fascinated by this. When a person like a Nick Cage or an Udonis Haslam or let's say LeBron gets caught, you know, he's back in town and he's bicycling back and forth to the American Airlines arena. It's not an apocryphal story like it happened. He's caught wearing your shirt. And if he, the ultimate is if a person like this with a massive following puts it up on Insta or yeah. TikTok or whatever's left of Twitter, now that Elon Musk has obliterated right. it, you're not on Twitter. Does that, did you then start seeing a ton of orders? You know, it, it's what you get. You you get a few. My things are kind of, I do limited drops, but I do get after that. You get those folks, oh man, I, I didn't get it. I didn't see it the first time. When are you going to drop again? You have to run it back. I get that a lot, which I think is part of the appeal of what I do is that I do these little 24-hour pre-sales, these ventanitas, where folks can come on and cop whatever design you know that I have available as many as they need. We custom print. So there's no oversaturation. If you look, uh, Robin, none of my, look at any of my shirts, not a single one says 305. I stay away from all the usual things, you know, 305 date, all that that we love, but it's so oversaturated that I really just try to do these designs that are original. They're almost like snapshots of my childhood. Yeah. Snapshots of my life in Miami. These are moments. Now you get to wear the moment. And that's, you know, that's pretty much what I, what I try to capture and stay away from. And I think it sets us apart from a lot of what's out there, fortunately. And you are the nostalgist in chief, the torchbearer at a time where a record number of outsiders are taking over the city and the skyline is just unrecognizable, absolutely unrecognizable. So you're there a couple of weeks ago during Art Basel, which is an you know, it's an international thing. It's like going to Can Lion. It's a it's a major deal. It's like going to South yeah, by Southwest. Um, and, and it wasn't there when I was growing up in Miami. And the whole part of town that's the arts district or whatever it took over was yeah. just dereliction prostitution oh. central. Yeah. So you're there. And then this, this, uh, this building in downtown Miami, in the heart of downtown Miami, that's been there for the longest time is getting knocked down for something much more you know, modern and mixed use and condo and super high rise level. But you're telling us not just the history from the 1960s to the present, but going back to the very founding of Miami and the residue of the Royal Palm Hotel, which yes. was built on a Tequesta burial mound yes. area. And it was, and, and even the baseball diamond and everything, you're taking us back. Really, there's no one else doing this. It's you and Casey Paquette that do it. Guys, if you're noticing Art Basel, like the first time we've had a high rise in this town, legally and completely spray painted over in the name and service of art. But let me take you back 125 years. And you're videoing that on your phone. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is I always say it's, it's all kind of up here in the hard drive. And there's an old saying, if you cannot explain it simply, you do not know it well enough. And I decided to pull over because I saw this building, the one Bayfront Plaza, built in 1959 as the first National Bank of Miami. And this thing went viral across the globe. There was a five points in New York, up in Brooklyn, that was legendary. And we kind of jokingly called this our 305 points, which was a building that got... So all these wonderful graffiti writers came in and blessed this, as I say, before it got demolished. And everybody's sharing it, and nobody was talking about the history. And I was literally driving to the corner of Miami, which is a cool bar after work. I said, let me pull over and do a quick two, two and a half minute video. And that exploded. And I, and people told me, like, you were like the voice for this building. Like nobody was talking about what it was born as, what it became, who owns it, what it's going to become, which is one bayfront, but 93 stories. And then going back 120 plus years to when it was the Royal Palm Park across from Henry Flagler's Royal Palm Hotel, 
where our first official baseball diamond was carved out, where the first major league team ever visited Miami in 1911, which was the New York Giants, all of that happened on that block. So it was cool to get that out there, and, and it just it got its legs and, and went viral. It's wild. Institutional memory. You're not some old person, some old codger out there, you know, trying to hold on to these archives at the, you know, the old dusty musky museum in downtown Miami. You're a young person telling us. And if I want to go a little further and click on the link, I can find out that it was a Tequesta burial mound. I could find out that, you know, when I moved to Miami in 98, there was the Miami Circle. They were going to build this gigantic condo at the mouth of the Miami River and Brickell Avenue. And they found this you know, this this perfect circle with, what was it, a manatee skeleton, shark skeleton, all the yeah. things seem to be pointing one way. I mean, this is a, a massive find. You don't, a lot of people make the fallacy of thinking Miami is only, let's say, you know, recently after the Civil War founded, 1896 or something like that. But yeah. there are so many voiceless people, literally the ghosts of the Miami of 1,000, 1,500 years ago. Is no one ever talks about it, especially today. Yeah, no, you know, I I always say this, Miami was officially incorporated, yes, uh, July 28th, 1896, but Miami, you know, itself, this land was inhabited by the Tequesta thousands of years ago, so, and obviously it made sense at the mouth of the Miami River, so the whole Fort Dallas and what is now Brickell and everything, that was... The, the native grounds. And that's why when they started uh, preparing to build the our first major hotel, you know, the Flagler Royal Palm, they they dug and, you know, oh, wait a minute, like we got skull and bones and different things here. You realize this goes back thousands of years. It happened again recently as they're trying to develop another site. They went down and they have to halt everything because I always say you got to respect that. Was that the DEA building on Brickell, yeah, the Capitol yeah. Grill? Yeah, that was not DEA. It was the, the customs, customs yeah. building. Uh, the dopers used to talk about the yes. customs building. Oh, hi. They go out in the Miami River past this yeah. place. <laughs> suckers, right? And it turns out that that too is on a native native burial yeah. ground. Joe Robbie Stadium. All these different areas, even up there. But yeah, here it made sense because it was by the mouth of the river. So that's where you think civilization would kind of gravi- you know, gravitate to and early pioneers. And yeah, the, the, the Native Americans at Tequesta were here long before any of us came over, brother. Abel, I have to ask you about, and I know you don't want to get into politics and you don't want to touch third rail things because you appeal to a wide swath of, you know, there could be New Yorker type Miamis, tech bro, crypto Miamis, culinary Miami, sports Miami, MAGA Miami, Trumpista Miami, uh, you know, Cuban grandfather Miami. But you do have to wonder about the city being its at its hottest ever, at its most FOMO, at its most saturated, and arguably the most inflation-hit city in the United States, where you talk about the P.E. ratio, the price-to-earnings ratio, what things cost versus what the earnings potential of a median resident is right there. It's just a huge chasm. It even makes New York City look you know, more competitive by comparison. Um, but what happens about sea level rise? This is something that visits us now when I go and I go downtown to my old stomping grounds. I can't recognize it. There used to be surface parking atop the burial ground area where there's now a gigantic Whole Foods and many other uh, high-rises. Brickell Avenue, which is kind of the Wall Street yeah. Park Avenue of Miami, absolutely unrecognizable. But at the same time, there are days during super high tide or king tide where you and I can go inland several miles in at Miami International Airport and water is gurgling yeah. up from the aquifer and we have to cover our sneakers in plastic bags. Um, How are people so oblivious about this? 
You know, I, I think it, it's if you live in those areas, you're not oblivious. If you don't, you'll see it on the news or online and you kind of shrug like, oh, that's terrible. They got to figure out the drainage. Definitely. Um, I always say what what's rising faster, you know, the, the cost of living or the sea level, you know, and, and we're going to find out right now. It feels like cost of living. But there are areas that, yeah, even on the beach that when it when it rains, Robin, like, yeah, you literally have to bag yourself up just to get to your freaking car. That's no bueno, as we say down here, especially with people, everything they have to do to live down here at this point. I say Miami's the land of the hustle and and second and third jobs. You know, there's people I know, guys with double degrees who are driving Uber. You know what I mean? Just to, to make ends meet. They got kids, especially. So it, it's going to be really interesting to see moving forward what how they kind of figure this out our government city government quote unquote i'll leave it at that uh you know needs to get on the ball and figure this out you know and people don't i mean you hear stories about this from like tehran iran yeah the places of inflation like real inflation of the likes of which like in argentina where if you're used to 120 percent inflation you're literally taking money from the bank or the instant it hits the account and you're spending it that day because it's going to deteriorate and you're starting to hear more than anecdotally People with degrees having to gig, having to do certain things in service of that Wall Street and tech economy that's been building in downtown Miami, but certainly can't afford to live in any of these high rises that are going up. Oh, no, no, that's that's not for us. You're getting an in, in influx of a lot of folks. Miami's always had its tourism and, and folks from everywhere, which is kind of you know, a reflection of America, which is great. But it, it's you see a lot of, I think, uh, Russian dollars, <clears throat> Malaysian dollars, Brazilian dollars, and those buildings are beautiful and god bless anyone that could afford it i don't hate on anybody but it affects obviously the rest and a lot of folks here and i know like i said a lot of real real miamians who are are they have no choice but to leave because it's just you know they're they're up to their neck you were listening to some of the recent episode insta miami catch the entire conversation wherever you get your podcasts. Full disclosure, special thanks to Notterly and the Robin School of Business at the University of Richmond. Again, if you are listening to us on the radio, note that while we often cut for broadcast length, the entirety of every interview is available on podcast. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. And you can follow on all social media at handle full. Radio. A shout out to our listeners on Radio IQ across the great Commonwealth. We are on WPVM in North Carolina and out in California on KPPQ. Message me if you would like to carry full disclosure on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. <laughs>